All right, we have come to Paul's final days here in Caesarea. He has been stuck in Caesarea Maritima for the last couple chapters. And we're going to see him give his final defense before Festus, the governor. There's a Bible name you don't hear given to children very often, Festus. And also to Agrippa, the king. And we're going to see in this passage, Paul is going to present the gospel, his own testimony, but he's finally going to get a chance to finish. You know, every stage along this path he's been starting, and then he doesn't get to finish because he gets cut off by an angry mob or something like that. And he's presenting a message that he's going to say, this is the fulfillment of every Old Testament hope. Everything that the Jews have been waiting for. And even the Romans are going to say, okay, I need to hear this guy. I want to hear what he has to say. Everyone in this passage claims to be a seeker after truth, a seeker after God. And you all know there are many people, you could almost maybe say most people, who claim to be seekers of God or seekers of truth. I see them when I go to Nepal for missions trips. There's a bunch of people with big old backpacks and they've got face paint on because they're seeking the truth. Lots of people say that. But here's the thing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 8, that everyone who seeks finds. And we know for a fact that not everybody who says they are seeking has found the truth. Isn't that right? So why is that? Well, I want to say to you today, it's because most people seek God with an agenda. They have certain things that they refuse to question. They have certain avenues that they choose to ignore. For example, there is a physicist named Richard Lewontin. I don't know how you would say that, but you've probably heard this quote before. But he said this in, in reference to evolution and creation and things like that. He said, we take the side of science because we have a prior commitment. A commitment to materialism. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, most people are not as open about their biases as this guy was. At least he came out and said it. <laughs> we have a prior commitment. We cannot allow there to be God. And most people are not that open, but it's common for everybody to have this same attitude. That I want God, I want the truth, I want to find heaven, but if it's going to take me that way, I'm not interested. Or I refuse to go down that avenue. I refuse to look under that rock. I refuse to crack open my Bible or look back at the church where I may have grown up. Contrast that with a man like Keith Green. You guys know who Keith Green is? He was a Christian musician in the late 70s and 80s, and he was a radical Christian. Kind of Christian who's so radical that he kind of makes you uncomfortable. You know, he says things that you're like, oh, don't say it like that, you know. But from his biography, which is one of my favorite books of all time, before he found Christ, it runs through the whole first chapters of him running through basically every religion you can think of. He even invented his own religion at one point. And there's a, a point where he starts to look towards Jesus and think maybe not the church, but maybe Jesus. And it says here, I'm quoting, he found himself praying to a God he didn't know. It wasn't a tidy little religious prayer. It was a prayer of desperation. Keith knew he'd reached the bottom of his list. Everything was scratched off but Jesus. If Jesus didn't come through, he didn't know what he would do. In between broken sobs, he choked out a prayer. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, if you're real, if you are who you say you are, please prove it to me. I need you. I need something. Show me the way. Prove that you're real, and I'll serve you forever. That's a true seeker. That's somebody who is willing to literally try everything. And when he gets to the point where the only thing left is Jesus, rather than saying, well, there must be nothing, he must say, I, Lord, if it's you, I need it to be you. And that last line, prove that you're real and I'll serve you forever. That's the heart of a true seeker. If this is real, it gets everything from me. We can add to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, Jeremiah 29, 13. The Lord said, you will seek me and find me when? When you seek me with all your heart. And everybody claims to be a seeker. There's an entire movement in the church that has sort of lost steam now, but it's methodology called the seeker-friendly movement, where everything in the church is organized around making the seeker feel comfortable rather than 
catering, you could say, to the believers, catering to the ones that are coming in and seeking the truth. But what I think that methodology misses, without throwing a bunch of shade that way, is people who say they're seekers are very rarely willing to lose everything to find Jesus. And this is what we're going to see in this story. We're going to see three different examples. There's the example of the Jews, Paul will encounter, who sought God for self-interested reasons. We're going to hit these again. The Romans, who sought God for self-aggrandizing reasons, trying to puff themselves up. And then Paul, who sought God for selfless reasons. And it really all boils down to the fact that God is the true seeker of men. And that if God was not seeking us, it doesn't matter what kind of seeking we're doing, we're not going to find him. So if you are here this morning, or if you're watching on the live stream, or you're hearing this on the radio, or you're listening to the podcast later, and you've been playing games with God, and being a, a dilettante, dabbling in religion, but not really interested, today is your day. You're going to be called on the carpet and forced to make a decision, which could be good news, because this could be your day of finding what you've been looking for. And as Keith Green would write later in one of his songs, when he became a Christian and found Jesus, he wrote a song and said this, You're so proud of saying you're a seeker, but why are you searching in the dark? You won't find a thing until you soften your heart. If you're going to have a hard heart towards God and towards the Bible and towards Jesus, why do you think you're going to find anything? It's what Paul had. He had a soft heart as opposed to these other guys that we're going to read about. So let's start reading now. These are big sections because it's two long chapters. But let's read the first 12 verses of Acts 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Underline this part. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Okay. Now, as we saw in the last verse of chapter 24, it has been two years that Paul has been in Caesarea after his arrest in the temple. He was held by Felix, the governor, and Felix was holding out for a bribe from Paul and left him in prison. Even though Paul was not under arrest for a crime, he was in what you might say was protective custody, but slowly that kind of changed until he was more a prisoner than anything else. And he's replaced by Porcius Festus, in about 58, 59 A.D. is where we are in the timeline. And Festus would not rule very long. He would rule until 62 A.D. at his death. And other than that, we don't know a whole lot else about Festus. Now, it's been two years. Ananias, the whitewashed wall, remember him? He's died in the meantime. There's a new high priest. But isn't it amazing that after two years, the Jews have still not forgotten Paul and they still want him dead? I think we're going to hit that a little more next time, but Satan sometimes will set a siege and wait for you, and he'll wait years if he needs to. They still want him dead, and they say, hey, Festus, why don't you bring him down to Jerusalem, because they, they're still waiting. Remember those 40 guys had taken a vow not to eat or drink until Paul had died, and they still want him dead, but Festus says, no, he's in Caesarea. I'm going back there. You can come up with me. So they have another hearing. He's sitting on his tribunal. That's the Bema seat, which you've heard about maybe. 
And the Jews begin to rail against Paul with a bunch of false accusations, nothing that they can prove. And it's, it's really very frustrating, as you see here, because Paul has every legal right to be set free. He has every moral right to be set free. But Festus is trying to make nice with the Sanhedrin. He just, just took office. He wants to be, be liked. And he says, well, do you want to come down to Jerusalem to be tried? Again, it's like his fourth trial. And after two years, Paul has run out of patience, hasn't he? <laughs> I'm done waiting. If it's going to be like this, you're going to try and make nice with these people. I'm not going to let myself get knocked about by you people anymore. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus approves that. Does anybody know who was Caesar at this time? A guy named Nero. So it's election season. Just remember, it could be Nero. <laughs> I appeal to Caesar Nero. Now, this had been a right that Roman citizens had for centuries, that they could appeal to Caesar, sort of like we can appeal to the Supreme Court. And remember back in 23, verse 11, Jesus appeared in a vision to Paul and told him, you will testify for me in Rome. And now it's just a matter of time until he's going to get sent to Rome. And it's ironic as we read this, especially if you start reading from Genesis to the end, that the Jews are making such fools of themselves in this story. The Romans, of all people, are the ones that seem reasonable. And they're acting corrupt and doing these backdoor deals and stuff, but the Jews, God's chosen people. And Paul's going to draw this out in the next chapter, that I'm not preaching anything other than what we already believed in the prophets. But these Jews, just like the ones that crucified Jesus, just like the ones that had stoned Stephen, they rejected the message of the gospel. Which is crazy because outwardly, these people were committed to seeking God. They had a, a cultural devotion to the law. They memorized it. They studied the, the very minute details. And they gave scribes prominent place. And the temple was the center of Jewish life. But for all that seeking of God, they did not find him. They missed it when Messiah came. Why was that? Paul said in Romans 10, verses 2 through 4, speaking about the Jews... He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal without knowledge is a dangerous thing. But being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's saying in those verses that if you study the law properly and you read through your Old Testament properly, it's going to bring you to Jesus. But they didn't find Jesus. Because, he says, they refused to submit to God and they wanted to establish their own. They were self-interested seekers. And so they missed it. They were seekers of God. They were on that journey. They were in the room. They were opening up the books and all that. But they were only seeking God for their own reasons. And their reasons we've discussed several times. There was a national fervor here. Because Israel has been under the thumb of Rome for so long, but we need to get them out of here. There was pride here. We're the ones that have the true knowledge of God, not like the Samaritans or the Gentiles. There was a cultural thing here, because there was what was called Hellenization, where the Jewish culture, not so much the religion, but the culture was being absorbed into the greater Greco-Roman culture. And they wanted to stop that. They wanted to be prominent in the world again. That's what they wanted. And they sought God as a means to those ends. And the thing is, they had some proof texts that they could have leaned back on, didn't they? They could have looked at what God said to Moses in Deuteronomy, or what God said to Joshua, or all the promises in the book of Psalms. The Lord said, we're going to be a nation, and we're going to fill the world, and we're going to rule from Jerusalem with a rod of iron. And they claimed those promises. Poor misreading of what God said, which is what Jesus was all about, right? He showed up and he said, guys, you're missing it. You want this, but you're missing step two. You got step one, and step three, you're missing the middle part, which is repentance and humility. But this is as common today as it was back then. People view God, they view the Bible, they view church as a means to their own selfish ends. You ever say something like, how can somebody who's been in the church that long be such a nasty person? Because they might be in the church, that doesn't mean they know God. People like that are never going to find the truth. That's why when people would come up to Jesus and say, I want to follow you, he would find the thing that was most dear to them and tell them to give it away. 
Some people seek God because they have cultural goals. You've seen a lot of this. And part of it gives you a little hope, but part of it is like, oh, no, not like this. Where people are, are afraid of the collapse of Western civilization, so what do they do? They grab the Bible like a lucky charm and say, this is what built our culture, and this is what's going to build it again. And you start using the Bible as a, as a mallet to beat your political opponents into the ground. Oh, they're reading the Bible. That, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but these are they which testify of me. So if you're not finding Christ in the middle of all that, it's not doing you a fat lot of good, is it? There are people that have personal goals. There are churches that are built around using the Bible to find your personal goals. Well, you know, it's time to get myself back in shape. I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to start reading more books. I'm going to get outside and meet new people. And I'm going to get back in church because it's a good thing to do. I'm trying to better myself. All of that, what does it do? It feeds on the flesh and not the spirit. It's all about now. It's all about me. It's all about this rather than what's going on in your heart. How do you know when you're doing this? When you're more obsessed with what you can get from the Lord than the Lord himself. You're more obsessed with all the things, all the goodies coming my way rather than knowing God. And listen, God loves to give us blessings. So it's not good to react and then say, we shouldn't talk about those things. But again, it's, it's like Jesus said, you've got to get the middle step before you get to the end step. You also know that you're a self-interested seeker when you're treating God not like a person, but like a, an algorithm or a, or a math problem. I, I've got these verses, and they all fit together, and they mean this. Therefore, God, you have to, whoa, easy. Take it easy. God is a person. God is not the force from Star Wars. And less directly, you think, well, we're going to get some religion because I, I, I don't want my kids to you know, go wild and crazy. This will give them some good morals. Uh, I need to beat my addictions. I'm going to get into church. It's going to help me. Those are both good things, but they're partly good. They're not all the way. It's not enough. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. So if you think you're going to come to Jesus to make your life better, you're missing the point. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We love to sing about resurrection power. That's real. But you've got to hang on the cross first. And if you're unwilling to die to yourself, you're not going to find that. And these Jews were unwilling to die to themselves, unwilling to sacrifice political goals. God was a tool for their own gain. And so they missed it. Here's Paul saying, how do you guys not get this? It's right there in the Bible. They weren't interested in that because the Bible was a tool for them. And you know, people who are self-interested seekers, they get bitter and angry. When you find Jesus Christ, overwhelming, inexpressible joy, right? But if you're using God as a tool, you're only going to be as joyful as it seems the tool is doing its job, aren't you? Self-interested seeking, that's not the way to do it. Well, Paul has appealed to Caesar, and let's see what happens in verse 13, now to the end of the chapter. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I, took no, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. Yeah, you can say that, but he's still your prisoner, isn't he? 
And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Okay. So we're introduced to another pair of characters here. Herod Agrippa, who was the king, or the ethnarch, as he was called. He was the ethnic ruler, where that word comes from, ethnarch, under the Roman emperor. And his sister, Bernice. Now, this is Agrippa II. We've already met Herod Agrippa I. He was the one back in Acts chapter 12 that got eaten by worms. Remember that guy? He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, which is the one that tried to have Jesus killed. Herod Antipas was the Herod that rejected Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. So there's a lot of Herods. It was a dynasty. The name Herod was a dynastic name, like Tudor or Stuart was a dynastic name in Europe. So it can get confusing, but this is Herod Agrippa II. Bernice was his sister. She had been married before to her uncle when she was 13 years old. But that uncle died, and she came to live with her brother, and it was commonly understood that Bernice and Agrippa were living in an incestuous relationship with each other. So, gross. And they're there, standing in judgment of Paul the Apostle. You can see the irony. She later on would become the mistress of Titus, the general Titus, not the, <laughs> the Bible guy, Titus. This is the general that would go on to destroy Jerusalem. So, she would have more more to come in her life, but these are not good people. And they visit Festus, and he tells them the story, and they want to see Paul. So it says they set up a day with great pomp. That word in Greek is fantasia. That's where we get the word for fantasy from, So or fantastic is like that. If you've ever seen any of those old sword and sandal movies where they've got the emperor riding in and the flowers being thrown and the chariots, it's like that. This is the kind of thing they're doing. All the kings are coming together. So that Paul can provide a hearing for Festus to write a report to Caesar. Jesus had said in Luke 21, 12, and God had said to Paul in Acts 9, 15, that the gospel would be brought before governors and kings, didn't he? Well, here you go. That's being fulfilled. Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. These are a different kind of seeker. They wanted to hear Paul. Listen to Agrippa. i got to hear this guy. This sounds crazy. I want to hear what he has to say. They're seeking but they're seeking as an intellectual exercise. They're curious, but they're not sincere. It's something to pass the time. I've got to visit with some king that I've never met before. We might as well hear the traveling preacher that he arrested. These people will represent for us today those who seek after truth or seek God for self-aggrandizing reasons. Self-aggrandizing seeker. To self-aggrandize means to make yourself grand. You're trying to pump yourself up a little bit that pomp, that fantasia of your life. People who want to go on the journey because it makes them seem smart, makes them seem sophisticated, to have a working knowledge of the world's religions. You've met people like this, haven't you? They usually have three or four things that they say that impress some folks, but there's not a lot of depth to it. It's like the Athenians that we read about in Acts 17.21. When I said all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's in a self-aggrandizing seeker. They don't really care about if it's true or not. They just want to hear something new. Paul would write in 2 Timothy 3.7 about people who were always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Have you known someone like that? They're always studying. They're always learning. They're always weighing their options. They never come to a conclusion. That's these guys here. These are people who read books on deep subjects. They try to impress you with the names of the people they're reading. They engage in various religious pursuits. I, just, I, I think every religion has something to offer, and I want to see what they all say. There, there's some truth at the bottom of all this, I think. Because they want to be stretched intellectually, but they never want to make a decision. They're false seekers because they have no intention of finding the answers. They don't expect to find answers, and they get mad at people who say they have found an answer. Because so, like we read before, they have a prior commitment to the conversation. Oh, there's one word that drives me crazy. 
I just want to open up a good conversation. I want to, I want to dialogue with you about this. Dialogue is not a verb, first of all. It's a noun. You have a dialogue. You don't dialogue with people. We've got to dialogue, have a conversation about truth. We're all on the journey. We're all on the... I have no time for that. Life is too short for me to spend my life talking about other people who take things seriously while I'm over here just evaluating it like a spectator. I don't want to be the guy commentating from the booth. I want to be the guy out there in the game. You know what I'm saying? But we're going to see in a moment that Festus and Agrippa are going to dismiss Paul's appeal. They have no intention of responding to his message. They want to hear him, but they were never going to make a decision. They were never going to believe. There are Bible scholars. There are pastors. There are lifelong church attendees who will be turned away from the gates of heaven because they have lots of knowledge, but there's nothing in their hearts. The Lord will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I think there will be a lot of people that claim to be agnostic. I don't think we can know. I just don't know. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. I just don't think you can know God. And they're going to show up and the Lord's going to say, I don't know you. That's horrifying, isn't it? But I mean, Bible scholars, they spend their life studying the Bible. I had a big fight with one of my seminary professors because he's like, this guy now, he doesn't believe the, the Bible is, is the word of God, but he's still got some great insights. Like, I don't want to read that. This, this guy is, he's a pretender. He's a, he's a seeker of, of knowledge. He's not a seeker of God. I don't want that. There are pastors that think the church is the best way to better their community instead of teaching the truth. And, the, and you say, well, do you think Jesus really rose from the dead? And they say dumb things like, well, does it really matter? Yes, it does really matter. There are people that have gone to church their whole life because that's the way their mom and dad raised them. And they're never going to leave the church, and they'll stand up and fight for it. And they might even let themselves get killed rather than stop going to church, but they don't know Christ. Ezekiel, chapter 33. The Lord said to Ezekiel, because he was preaching in Babylon now, and everybody was coming to hear Ezekiel preach, and he's starting to get encouraged, like, hey, the people are listening. They want to hear me. They're listening to the word of the Lord, but God said, as for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, they say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. Let's go to church. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. There are folks that go to church because it's a good show. That preacher can preach, man. I want to hear him. And then after this, maybe we'll catch a movie. And then after that, we'll go to a concert. The Lord's telling Ezekiel, don't get deceived by the crowds. Because the crowds are coming. That doesn't mean that they want me. Because they're hearing you, but they're not doing it. He was just the most entertaining thing to be found in that quarter of Babylon. So you ought to examine your own heart. Are you a selfish seeker? Are you like that? You're coming to church because it's a thing to do? How can you tell? If you only ever consider the teaching of scriptures as how it might benefit somebody else, you know, you hear something preaching, you go, oh, I know somebody needs to hear this. Oh, that'll get him. I need to remember that one. Somebody had that argument next time. Pow, I'm coming right at him. You only ever think, oh, yeah, maybe I could, I could turn that into to like a really cute Instagram post and everybody will think I'm really spiritual and nice. Listen, not every seeker is an honest seeker. Some people only want to serve themselves like those Jews. Some people see it as a pastime like Festus and Agrippa. Neither one of them is going to find the truth. Neither one's going to find God because they've got other motives. But let's look at Paul now, chapter 26. We're going to read the first 23 verses. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. 
And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. We just read about that promise in Genesis on Wednesday nights. To which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Underline verse 8, will you? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is finally given his chance to speak. This is the longest discourse that Paul has in the book of Acts. He says he made his defense. That word in Greek is apologeomai. It's where we get the word apologetics from. Apologetics does not refer to apologizing for the faith. It comes from the Greek word that means to defend. So apologetics is the defense of the faith. So he's standing there, Herod Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, all the tribunes, all the soldiers and nobles. And he begins by giving his testimony. He starts as a Pharisee, and he interestingly says, I started out strictly following the law, and I never stopped doing that. I found the fulfillment of the law in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, I believe as I do because Jesus is risen from the dead. That's verse 8, right? Why, why is that incredible to you? This is God we're talking about. He can raise the dead. And then he explains, well, why do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? He goes through all the persecutions he led. When he says there, I cast my vote, really quickly, some people have taken that to mean that Paul was a member of that Sanhedrin, of that leading council. I don't think that's the case because there's several reasons I could get into. Number one, Paul was not married and he would have had to be married. He also was very, very young at the time, so it seems unlikely. But the point is, I was all in. I was approving of the death of Stephen. I wanted these people killed. And then we have the third narration of Paul's conversion. Saw it in chapter 9, chapter 22, and now chapter 26. The Damascus Road, Jesus Christ appeared to him raised from the dead. And he says, I was commissioned to be a witness to what I had seen, especially to the Gentiles. And he preached everywhere. He says in Judea. We don't really know where or when Paul preached in Judea, but he said he did. And it culminates all of this by saying, I am following the truth of the prophets and Moses. He says, I have all my life followed the word of God as strictly as possible, and I'm still doing that. And it's led me to Christ. Can you see how Paul is an entirely different kind of seeker? Paul pursued God to the best of his ability at all times. If, when he, he became a Pharisee because he wanted to follow the law strictly. When he believed those Christians were heretics, he persecuted them because if they're heretics, they've got to go. But when he met Jesus, he gave all that up. Because I'm not interested in being a great Pharisee or a great Jew or a great nobleman. I want to know God. 
Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I accounted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul was a selfless seeker. He held on to nothing. He gave up everything to find God. And it started out by being a Pharisee and then even a persecutor of the church. But Paul was so sincere in his pursuit of God, he couldn't stay away that long because the Lord brought him to the truth. Now, most people say, well, I'm a seeker. And by that, they mean, I'm not going to believe all that stuff I was taught growing up. That's not what a seeker is. If you're a true seeker, you're going to examine everything, including what you were taught when you grew up. And just because you didn't have some big, long journey around the world doesn't mean that you haven't found the truth. He held on to nothing. Paul was actually sincere. Kind of like we talked about Keith Green at the beginning. He was actually sincere. He actually wanted to know God. He didn't have other motives. He didn't have other presuppositions, as he said at the beginning, that quote, we have a prior commitment. His only commitment was to know God, and if that means losing everything, fine. Get rid of it. It's loss. Mark it down as loss that I may know God. If you cannot deny yourself, you will not find God. Let me just tell you that right now. If you cannot lose what you have, you will not find God. Maybe you should examine how you reacted at the threat of losing everything you had this year. We've all faced that. How did you react? Because how you reacted can tell you what has a hold on your heart. And you need to die to that. Maybe you should get rid of it anyway. But Paul found the truth. He says he found the light. The light shone brighter than the sun. There's a great picture there, isn't it? He was delivered out of darkness, away from Satan, and delivered to God. And he says there in, in verse 18, which is an amazing verse that summarizes the gospel for us. He says they found forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. A place among the saints. That's what God has promised us. That's what we're looking for, isn't it? Liberty from guilt. A new inheritance, both in heaven and now, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're all looking for. We're all looking for God. And the way to get that, as he says in verse 20, is repentance. What is repentance? Turning away from sin, turning to God, and then he says, bearing fruit worthy of repentance. Works don't save you, but you know you've repented when your works start to change. And this is all confirmed by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He refers to the scriptures. We don't have time to get into them, but Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 16 and elsewhere talks about the promised resurrection if you are a true spiritual seeker, you're going to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. There is a hilarious history of people setting out to disprove the Bible, becoming Christians, and becoming pastors and teachers and evangelists. Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, C.S. Lewis to an extent. They wanted to know the truth, and they thought the idea of God and Jesus Christ being the truth ridiculous. But because they were so committed to finding the truth, they were forced to acknowledge the truth of Jesus Christ. And perhaps it's so familiar that it's hard for us to grasp, but Jesus said in Luke 10 that all the Old Testament saints desired to know what you know and to see what you see and to hear what you hear. And you're blessed to have it. You reject that truth. You reject the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and rose from the dead. You're rejecting the truth. Well, I just, I don't believe that any one religion has a monopoly on truth. No other religion has the Son of God who died and rose from the dead. That's why it makes a difference. That's the difference. That's why Paul keeps hammering it. Did you notice that? Paul gave up everything to know God. If you're not willing to give up everything, if you've got a prior commitment, you're not going to find him. I'm telling you right now. If you've got places you won't go, things you won't believe, stuff you won't give up, then, then just stop because you're not going to find it. And you, Christian, are you holding back now that you have found the truth? Don't do that. Coming to the end here, verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, 
You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul is interrupted again. Likely in his breakdown of the scriptures proving the resurrection, and Festus accuses him of being driven in Greek, ace manian. You've been driven into mania. Paul is literally the word there. He's calling Paul a maniac. You're, you're obsessed with this one thing because you've read too many books, Paul. You need to get outside more. Well, Paul reminds him, and we have to do this a lot, he says, don't just say I'm crazy. What have I said that is not true? People love to do that. They want to they do those attacks to make you feel bad. Like, But you haven't said anything about what I just said to you. You just said it was crazy. You said I was a maniac. Which part is maniacal? Do you not like the conclusion? Well, that's no reason to reject anything. And he appeals to Agrippa. He says, Agrippa, come on. You're, you're a Jew. He was part Jew. He, he kind of tried to make nice with the Jewish nation by believing the scriptures. He says, you know this. You believe the prophets. And he says, you think in such a short time you can convince me to be a Christian, Paul? Now that, that phrase there, depending on how you translate it, he can either be saying, this hasn't been very long, but you've almost persuaded me. Or he can be scoffing at Paul and saying, uh, I don't think just a short little thing can convince me. I think they both amount to the same thing. By the way, this is our second use of the word Christian in the book of Acts. Last one is in chapter eleven twenty-six in the church of Antioch, and Peter will use it again in 1 Peter four sixteen. A lot of people like to say, well, the word Christian is not even in the Bible. They're wrong. It is in the Bible. <laughs> And Paul drives home the appeal. Don't you love this? That Paul is trying to get these people to let him go. And rather than talking about that, he's trying to get them converted. He's trying to give an altar call. Come on, man. You know this stuff. By the way, don't ever risk somebody's soul for your own benefit. We are to make appeals. We are to share the gospel. And there are people that want to say, we should never make an appeal to people. We just present the facts and back off. Well, look what Paul's doing here. He's driving. He's trying to close, man. He's, he's not going to get the chance to talk to Agrippa again. He's pushing it. Now, why do we make appeals like that? Because left to our own devices, we will not come to God. People are too bound up in their little lives. Romans 3.11. We've talked about different kinds of seekers today, but it really boils down to this. Romans 3.11 says, no one understands, no one seeks after God. Who's the true seeker? No one. Everybody's got a plan. Everybody's got an agenda. Everybody's got a prior commitment. Because our decision-making capacities are damaged by sin. We think we want the truth, but in reality, we have another goal that we're chasing. We think we've already found it. We're just trying to get there. Romans 1.18 says that we suppress the truth. And we try to grade ourselves on a curve by everybody else until God breaks in, like Paul on the road to Damascus. The Holy Spirit is at work drawing people to God. It's called prevenient grace, that God is pulling us. He's drawing us to himself. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So there's no one group that has a corner on being drawn by God. God is pulling everyone to him. And we, as Christians, get to be the mouthpiece of God. We get to speak out and call them to the point of decision. So, well, God doesn't need us. God chose to use us. The church is plan A. There is no plan B. So in reality, the only true seeker is God. Well, I'm a seeker. Well, if you found God, it's not because you were a seeker. It's because God is seeking after you. We're so stuck that if God didn't come after us, we wouldn't find him. But lucky for us, or we should say glory to God, he delights in showing mercy. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Praise the Lord. Jesus said, I came not just to save people, but to find them. Find the ones that need saving, and then save them. If you've not come to Jesus Christ, if you have not believed that his death on the cross and his resurrection is 
the work of God. If you've not repented and turned from your sins and come after him, you're lost. You are lost. Well, I don't feel lost. Yes, you do. Don't lie to me. You might, you might have a nice little veneer in front of everybody else. Your Facebook page might look like one big happy family, but you know what's going on in your heart. You know. Don't lie to me. I, I, after a while, I stopped indulging that because I know it's not true. I don't think I need God. Yes, you do. Well, I'm mad at God. Why are you mad at God? Well, something bad happened to me. Bad things happen to everybody. That's no excuse. What else you got? Talk to the Lord. The Lord is trying to draw you to himself. We try to cobble together our own truth. I had a friend who didn't invent his own religion, but he just had little pieces of everything. He had a lot of Bible in there. He had a lot of Carl Jung in there. He had a lot of weird magical stuff he had found in there, and he mixed it all up, and he says, this is what I believe. I said, you can't just make your own truth. Well, it's not what I'm doing. It's exactly what you're doing. I, just, I think there's good things from everywhere. You know what you're doing when you do that? You're not seeking anything. You're looking for people who are smarter than you that are saying things you already think. So it makes you sound profound. You're worshiping yourself. You're not seeking. You know, this generation, my generation, has an arrogance about itself when it comes to seeking truth. We really think that we can create our own truth. We, we, we don't just say that and then kind of chuckle. We believe that. You teach something long enough, people are going to believe it. But you know what's going to happen? It's not going to work. We know that, don't we? You try to construct your own truth, it's only as strong as you. And we know what you're like, and it's all going to fall apart. And this generation, which also has more depression and more anxiety and more fear and more neurosis than any previous generation, is going to collapse and crash under the weight of their own constructed truth. You must humble yourself before God. Recognize that you cannot create truth for yourself. You have to believe the truth about Jesus Christ. It's right here. It's waiting for you. The truth is right there. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets and says, how long will you be simple? The Lord offers forgiveness. He offers life to everyone who repents. But only those who can set aside all of their own prior commitments will find him. Until you are ready to die, you are going to be forced to keep walking to the point of desperation. And might I say, too, we ought to be full of pity for these people that are so desperate. You know, Calvary Chapel, some of you know this, some of you don't, was, was birthed out of what was called the Jesus movement, when the, when the hippie movement was at its peak, and, but it was just starting to fade off, and everybody was just starting to realize there was nothing there, there was no real substance. And thousands and thousands of young kids found Jesus Christ on the beaches of California with their long hair and their bare feet and their beards and their, their drug convictions and all this stuff. They found Jesus Christ. Because there was a man that was willing to open up his doors and say, I'm going to love you like Jesus. We are facing a very similar time today, and the church is reacting very similar to the way the church reacted back then, which is, dirty hippie, get a job. No, you guys, we've got to pity. These are the people that we're there to save. These are the people that have stared the lies of our culture in the face and said, I don't want that. They're going to make something new. But the thing is, they're going to run into a wall with this stuff, too. So when are we going to be out there with the gospel saying, no, none of that? Jesus Christ, not trying to play nice like Festus was doing, like, well, you got some things, but you know, there's some things over here saying, no, that's wrong. It's incorrect. Jesus Christ died for your sins and he loves you very much. That's what we want to see, isn't it? I want this church to be filled up with people that were burning down cities six months ago. That's what I want to see. I want to see people finding Christ, finding that joy and that hope and that peace and that justice and that mercy that they're looking for. The only place they can find it which is at the cross, where mercy and justice perfectly meet together, where the Lord poured out his wrath on his son so that he could pour out his forgiveness upon you. You guys, and this is not planned, none of this was planned. When you go home and you read those articles and you watch the news and you get all fired up and angry, don't do that. Drop to your knees and beg for the Lord to show mercy to those people. How amazing would that be? Well, there it is. Now everything is going down to the toilet. This is it. It's all over. The Lord doesn't look at things like that. The Lord looks up and says, watch me work. Those people need my salvation. Our churches in a few decades, I firmly believe, are going to be very different looking than they are right now, but it's going to be for the joy of God's people. We're going to be looking around saying, man, that person transitioned their gender, but now they found Jesus and they're here. This person 
was under arrest for countless counts of burning buildings down, all this kind of stuff. And now they're here and they love Jesus Christ. This person over here was this. They were that. This person was a neo-Nazi. This person was an anarchist. And now we're all here holding hands and singing praise to Jesus Christ because we found the truth. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that we, this is not your sanctuary from all that stuff. This is your barracks to get your sword and your shield and your helmet and get out there into the battle and bring some of them folks back. Amen? Well, I don't know if I like that. Well, that's okay. The Lord will reveal it to you. The Lord will give you the grace to love them in that moment. And I just used up the end of my time, didn't I? Well, let's finish up verse 30. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And yet again, they keep him imprisoned. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. God is at work sovereignly guiding Paul. Matthew 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock. And it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. We looked at three kinds of seekers today. The self-interested seeker who's got an agenda. The self-aggrandizing seeker who has no agenda but also no intention of finding the truth. And the selfless seeker, the one who's willing to give up everything. But ultimately Jesus Christ himself is the true seeker, isn't he? In verse 14 of that chapter, the Lord said to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what a goad is? When a donkey won't move, you get a big pointy stick and you poke it real hard to get it to move. And then they kick and they kick. But eventually, it's easier just to get moving. There are some people, I'm convinced, that are hearing this that are kicking against the goads. And you have no other reason to reject Jesus other than you just don't want to. We want it our own way. We want to be sophisticated. We want to be accepted by our former friend group, whatever it is. Listen, you're miserable, and you know why? Because God is right there ready to give you his love, but you're rejecting it. Don't be like a mule, like you read in Psalm 32, that needs a bit and a bridle in its mouth. Let God bring you home. Forgiveness of sins and inheritance among the saints. Well, maybe there's something else out there. You young folks that have grown up in Christian families, well, maybe there's something else out there. There's not. I promise you, there's not. And I want to close with this. This is from another quote from Keith Green, another song that he wrote. This is that guy that was so desperate seeking after God and finally found Jesus. And this is one of the first songs that he wrote after he got saved. And I think we all can relate to this. He said, like a foolish dreamer trying to build a highway to the sky, all my hopes would come tumbling down and I never knew just why. Until today, when you pulled away the clouds that hung like curtains on my eyes, I've been blind all these wasted years and I thought I was so wise. But then you took me by surprise, like waking up from the longest dream, how real it seemed until your love broke through. I'd been lost in a fantasy that blinded me until your love broke through.